Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I'm posting this podcast on Thursday, uh, April 16th, 2020. I'm sharing the day and the date because... The days do seem to be blurring over these past few weeks in this era of social distancing and lockdowns and work at home. On Friday, March 27th, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners asking two questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way we're delivering healthcare? And how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing daily. So in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. Now, in this episode, we'll be interviewing Jay Desai. Jay is the founder and CEO of Patient Ping. Patient Ping's mission is simple, connecting providers to seamlessly coordinate patient care. They provide real-time ADT feeds, that's admissions, discharges, and transfers to providers so they can provide more coordinated and integrated care to their patients. I have to tell you, I've had firsthand experience with their service, and I can't say enough good things about Patient Ping, what they're doing, and how they're innovating. In our dialogue We're going to cover a range of topics focusing largely on the flow of patients in the healthcare infrastructure, particularly in what they call the post-acute care space, and how the infrastructure of the healthcare ecosystem is fundamentally being reframed by the COVID-19 experience. Jay has some really insightful observations and commentary, and I'm really looking forward to sharing our discussion with you. So without further ado, Jay Desai, the founder and CEO of Patient Ping. So Jay, welcome to Creating New Healthcare, and I am really glad you could make the time to speak with us today. Before we jump in, could you just give a, a high-level overview of Patient Ping for the audience? Yes. So Patient Ping is a care coordination platform that uh, principally is focused on um, our product called Pings, which is Uh, admission and discharge notifications when patients show up at emergency rooms, hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, home health agencies, and a number of other care settings. I just want to say that we use patient ping. It has been an amazing tool for us to know when our patients are admitted, like you say, to emergency rooms, when they get admitted to other hospitals or other facilities. And I know our social work, our case managers and care managers use it every day and just absolutely love the tool and and love how it helps them improve the care of patients. And so, so I just wanted to add that. How have you been putting together some of the changes that are already happening in healthcare today? How how has COVID-19 already reframed healthcare right now in the present moment? Yeah. And just to give a little bit of context for where I'm coming from in evaluating how the health system is changing. So patient paying customers include uh, accountable care organizations that are trying to steer and route patient volume, whether it's as a patient who's an avoidable admission through the emergency room 
or um, a patient who's a candidate for home health versus skilled nursing, um, trying to manage the amount of time that a patient is in a skilled nursing facility. Uh, we do that with at-risk providers. We also do that with payers um, and a number of other sort of providers in between. So we see a lot around patient flow and how patients are sort of utilizing the healthcare system. And, you know, it's been really interesting to see ADT information, stands for admission discharge transfer, uh, as something that's really useful for providers in the COVID kind of context uh, for two purposes. One is at the workflow level. So if a patient presents in the emergency room um, or in the hospital with a COVID diagnosis, being able to triage one, um, those infected patients to the appropriate uh, destination if they're being followed up on post-hospitalization at a skilled nursing facility. They need to action quarantine procedures uh, immediately if they know that the patient is coming up with, um, you know, being transferred to them with a, with a COVID diagnosis. Um, home health agencies need to make sure that their aides are appropriately sort of protected if showing up at patients' homes who do have symptoms. So being able to be notified of, you know, patients who do get the diagnosis is really important for infected patients. Additionally, for uninfected patients, if a patient presents in the hospital um, and they're uninfected, oftentimes uh, immediately what those providers want to do, particularly if they're older uh, and frail, is to ensure that they are um, routed to a destination where they will be able to get the care that they need in a safe environment where they, they aren't exposed to, um, you know, to, to COVID. Uh, so, so seeing that happen already. Also, um, at the state and federal level, being able to track health system strain, and this is just a quick aside, um, leveraging a real-time surveillance tool like an ADT information. So to see what's going on with EDs, what's going on with ICUs, you know, across the state, uh, how many are showing up at, you know, with COVID diagnoses, um, how many beds are available, are they reaching capacity? Uh, being able to sort of track that at a state and federal level and at a hospital level uh, using ADT information is, is proving to be a very valuable use case for public health agencies. So that, that's, that's some context that I'm coming to this from. And I think the way that we're seeing today healthcare being reframed is that it feels like before there was a pull into the health system. So come and get your hips and knees replaced. Come get a CT scan. Come get your annual physical. And because of the social distancing measures that are um, in place, that, that approach of almost marketing to patients to have them receive services um, which is really a vestige of, I think, the fee-for-service system, is just being up, you know, upended. So while value-based care was trying to shift care out of the hospital into the home, with COVID, people are aggressively avoiding the healthcare system, um, obviously because of the social distancing measures and that what may be what's healthiest for them. So while hospital-acquired infections aren't necessarily a new thing, given how contagious COVID is, is creating a reason for people to second-guess if they should go into a healthcare setting at all. And so that's been really interesting to, to observe. And I can go through a number of other observations, but we're seeing that happen immediately. It's just people are avoiding the healthcare system as much as they possibly can, not just the ER and the hospital, but also primary care settings. A number of primary care groups we're seeing are, are really struggling for, for keeping their businesses alive um, because the amount of volume that, that they're uh, seeing right now is coming down dramatically. I think some of the telehealth waivers that have been put in place are exciting to see that uh, primary care providers will be able to offer telehealth at a, at a similar reimbursement as an in-person visit so that they can continue to deliver the care for the patients who need it. That's tremendous insight. This idea of before 
I think you're absolutely right. The entire machinery was around pulling people into the system. And as you're saying now, the entire machinery is around keeping people out of the system. Are you able to track the flow of patients? Are you seeing that, I mean, the visually or quantitatively, that, that movement as you're putting, it's almost like a stream. As you were talking, I'm sort of visualizing a stream. Yes. Uh, what, what are you seeing? We're, we're seeing in virtually every state a aggregate reduction. This is over the past three weeks. We're seeing an aggregate reduction in the overall ED volume. So that we looked at emergency uh, departments to start, uh, and we're seeing a reduction in emergency room department visits, which it, it started out as an absolute reduction in the trend line. Um, but now there's another trend line that's sort of trending ED visits up, but specifically around seven COVID-related ICD codes, so certain respiratory infections. So, you know, whether they show up for a cough or other respiratory or ILI influenza-like um, illnesses. Uh, or influenza-like indications, uh, they're they're showing up. Um, you know, we're seeing that trend line go up. We're seeing that happen in virtually every state. So we'll, we we didn't see any increase in ED visits for several weeks. And you know, public health reporting agencies were sort of wondering what's going on with the EDs. Are they becoming overwhelmed? But but the opposite was happening. Is ERs were were actively keeping people out of the uh, out of the care setting, and the social distancing measures were keeping people out for things that they may have otherwise gone there for. But and so that created some capacity. And over time, you know, we've seen the COVID-related visits go up. So you're seeing that increase. Are you seeing other sort of movements? Can you track transfers to home care? And what's happening with that? Because, you know, we were obviously also trying to increase those sorts of transfers before, but is that decreasing now or what's going on? Now, what I'm going to talk about is more anecdotal. We haven't, I haven't done the, you know, um, the analysis of these trends, but we have seen skilled nursing facility occupancy, obviously, uh, coming down in a number of settings. People are trying to get out of SNFs as quickly as possible because of the infection-rich uh, zones that they may be. We're also seeing kind of um, interesting sort of bifurcation of, uh, this is happening, I think, across many care settings where if you have, say, two skilled nursing facilities within a region, you may make one that is a COVID safe zone or meaning there's no COVID patients and then the other one where there may be patients with COVID. You know, even primary care clinics are doing that where they'll have one that's only seeing patients with uh, respiratory indications and then another one where it's everybody else. In ERs, they're having fever clinics where patients are being held and those are not necessarily being reported as visits, but they're being held in certain areas while the beds are being filled with, you know, other types of indications. ICU uh, beds are very, we're, we're seeing that steadily increase in many markets, particularly some of the major metros that we're in. So yeah, so it, it's not necessarily surprising what you're hearing me say. It's just what, it's what's being reported every single day. Um, but the data is certainly supporting, uh, supporting that. Are you saying you're seeing a decrease in the transfers to or admissions to nursing homes and a total decrease in occupancy? And do you have any sort of data or quantification over that? Uh, don't have data quantification over that. We've seen this happen, though, in a number of our markets with our customers telling us that, particularly on the SNF side, they are holding on um, new admissions if they are because they're they're not sure whether the patient has an indication. Um, for patients that do have an indication of COVID, they need to know that upstream, and they're setting up quarantine procedures to be able to ensure that you know patients with COVID aren't infecting the residents that they may have otherwise. So I guess the post-acute community is really trying to keep their staff safe um, and ensure that the patients that they do accept 
and transfer into their facilities are um, appropriately managed relative to the other folks that may be in their, you know, in their homes already. In in this COVID era, though, as we're trying to protect the even the home healthcare workers, of course. So, is there a problem right now in terms of keeping people at home? How are the workers able to even go into the homes? Right. Yeah. So the home health agencies are one of the large um, consumers of PPE because they are going into the homes um, oftentimes with infected patients uh, who need essential care and uh, they need to be protected. So the home health aides are very keen on knowing uh, whether or not a diagnosis is there, um, you know, for the patient that they're visiting. But I do think that compared to SNFs, in light of this um, particular pandemic, being home with home health support is certainly better to skilled nursing, as long as the home health agency is able to protect their staff. And the home health agencies that are being proactive about this are equipping their home health staff with, you know, with N95 masks and um, the appropriate protective equipment for them to be able to maintain services. How do you think healthcare is going to be reframed in the coming months, coming couple of years and coming future? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that I wonder. Um, one is, given this sort of strong uh, repulsion, if you will, which may be um, a bit hyperbolic, um, of going into the healthcare system, whether that's in a skilled nursing facility, an ER, a hospital, even a primary care setting, uh, because of a fear of infection, I think people are recalibrating whether or not they needed to go in the first place. So I wonder if we'll see a reduction in the absolute amount of care that's delivered as patients realize that maybe they were okay uh, without going in to get that uh, procedure or uh, elective surgery or um, particular condition treated in a facility-based setting and instead were able to manage that either on their own or with, uh, with telehealth support. Obviously, that won't be true for many patients um, that, that, do need, that do need to get essential care. And so for that group of people who are not getting the care that they need, um, because they're avoiding the setting, I think that that that's a very concerning trend for you know what's going to happen there. You know, are there going to be nursing home sniffs in the future? Are we going to just have a fraction of the number and the occupancy? I mean, we're talking now about hospital at home. Uh, are we going to have you know the future? Is the future going to be a skilled nursing facility at home? Uh, essentially, just a, a an explosion of home health care and a radical reduction in nursing homes and sniffs. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is um, all of the care delivery at home or virtual care models where patients can be at home. This is their day. Um, I think people are realizing that if it can be done at home, um, patients want it done at home, particularly now. Um, And so the convenience that comes from that, the safety that comes from that, um, I think is, is going to help those models that have been clamoring to try to um, encourage that sort of transition, um, see the effectiveness of those models. And I think some of them may not always work, you know, like some of the, there are some challenges with some hospital at home programs uh, where they may not, you know, it, it may be, it may not actually work to support certain types of patients in a home-based setting and actually within a hospital may be the appropriate place to do it um, or the more scalable or efficient way to do it. So I, I don't know. I think, I think uh, we'll certainly see, I mean, telehealth is a perfect example. Like if you, if you now get used to dealing with a simple medication that you need, a simple consultation around, you know, a, a bump or a bruise that you have, or, you know, kind of anything that was historically done 
in a face-to-face visit that just as easily can be done in a virtual visit. I think the, the sort of accelerated pace at which CMS is making that sort of care accessible and you know financially viable for the providers of it is definitely, I think, going to be you know uh, a major trend that uh, that sticks. Um, and if that'll then have an associated decline in the number of facility facility-based settings, SNFs, hospitals, ERs, because the demand is being shifted to the home, I think we'll see. You know, we'll see the extent to which you know there, there's sort of a if you build it, they will come mindset historically in fee-for-service healthcare, and we'll see if consumer preferences take hold um, where they like it at home. And even though the facility-based option is there um, and the marketing is being done by those facility-based care providers, if that volume or that um, square footage, I guess, of of space that they've invested in uh, will no longer be needed because patients just don't want to get it there. Uh, I think that'll be a very interesting interesting thing to to watch. I I think so. In addition to the absolute amount of care that's being done um, elsewhere, uh, sorry, sorry, the reduction in the absolute amount of care that's being delivered, where people are saying, I don't want to go get my, I don't want to go to the primary care doctor, I don't want to go to the um, hospital, the ER, uh, I want to just because I, I don't want to risk infection. Some of that need, that care needs to be delivered, and it'll be delivered through virtual models or hospital or you know um, home healthcare type models, or hopefully there won't be dire consequences for patients' overall health and well-being. But then for some patients, they just will realize that they were fine without going to get the care. And maybe that um, maybe that'll bring a re- an absolute reduction to the amount of care that's happening. The second, I think, is when you are getting care, I think people will want to get it for shorter in a shorter amount of time. So if you're in a skilled nursing facility, it's interesting. I think people are probably like, I want to get out of here. I want to get out of here as quickly as I can because I don't want to risk infection. When before, um, it was sort of a safe space, in particular in reimbursement in the skilled nursing facility side. You actually get paid more to be there for 21 days, you know, up to 21 days. And so I think in this environment, it may be that patients actually prefer to be um, outside of a facility-based care setting. Um, so the, so not, in addition to the absolute amount of care that's being delivered coming down, the amount of time people are in facilities getting care may also be coming down. And I think the other thing that's interesting is, is will there be greater specialization of different care provider types? So for instance, you know, we're seeing uh, facility-based care being subspecialized. So COVID patients go over here, non-COVID patients go to another building. And Clayton Christensen talks a lot about unbundling um, conglomerate. So if right now the hospital can do everything from a annual wellness visit to, you know, a bypass surgery, the, the idea of specialization where people who are best equipped and the business model is, is supported to, to deliver high, high value care for a specific type of procedures, like we've seen with hips and knees in most, re- in most region, there's, you know, sort of special centers of um, excellence that are just doing only hips and knees, and, and they tend to be where a lot of the volume goes. I wonder if this will result in um, continuation of that trend where, you know, hospitals will keep what they are really good at, which is, you know, intensive care. Like, where, where is intensive care going to go? If you need a ventilator, you're not going to do that at, um, if you need to be intubated, you know, that, that needs to be done with the appropriate surveillance, and that, that does make sense in a, in a facility-based care setting now. But, you know, does the hospital then also need to be delivering primary care? Um, do they need to have primary care doctors? You know, do they need to be doing uh, colonoscopies within that same care setting? Maybe there'll be sort of an unbundling of, of where that care is happening. You know, I just want to interject. I think this is what you're raising is absolutely brilliant. And it seems like, you know, it, it very well may accelerate, you know, what Regina Herslinger at the Harvard Business School wrote about, you know, literally 20 years ago, these focus factories where you don't have these multi, you know, kind of uh, focused hospital systems, but you've got a gastroenterology surgery center and a 
a orthopedic surgery center and you know a, you know ENT surgery. So so it's really this sort of segmentation or even hyper segmentation of these you know super focused uh, healthcare factories that in this day and age now in the COVID era and and hopefully in the post COVID era, which will be in hopefully soon enough, um, we might see this rapid catalyst uh, you know movement to that. It's just probably safer, right? You know, if you need an ICU, you shouldn't have your ORs next to your ICU, right? I mean, that's how infections spread. And so so it really is just fascinating to hear you talk about this movement that literally we've been talking about. Uh, a lot of this has come out of the Harvard Business School, Clayton Christensen, Regina Herzlinger, and others who have talked about this segmentation. I, you know, again, I wrote about it in the book on reframing healthcare that we we are we need to and will be shifting to the hypersegmentation of care. So yeah, thank you for raising that. I agree. I think uh, COVID will be be an accelerant of that particular trend. And you know, kind of what we're seeing primary care versus telehealth is just another example of that. You know, I wonder if if so much care starts moving, if so much of primary care moves to the video uh, virtual setting, what happens to primary care? What's the role of primary of all these primary care clinics? We've been talking a lot about primary care shortages, but I've been hearing from many, many primary care practices across the country that are severely short on volume and they're, they're struggling, uh, you know, to, to keep their businesses alive. It's not that different from say a restaurant or, you know, a retail shop. It's if, if you're not getting patients coming through and those patients can be served through virtual care, um, then what is the role of the in you know in person primary care based setting? Obviously, there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done in a primary care setting. Lab tests um, can't be done at home. Uh, flu shots cannot be necessarily administered at home. They may be able to be done in a re- in a retail clinic, but there, there's still a lot of facility based uh, care that needs to be done that that's over face to face visit. Um, but will there be enough volume of those face to face encounters for the current primary care? practices to be able to um, to be able to survive or will, be, will we see a reduction there? I don't think anybody's ever contemplated a reduction in primary care. We've always talked about how we need more primary care in this country. But if, if a lot of that care moves virtual, then what happens to all the square footage, really, the facilities that are currently housing primary care doctors? The last point that I, I was reflecting on is just, you know, having worked at CMS and knowing oftentimes the, the timelines and the expectations that we have internally at CMS around how long it typically takes to get something done, whether it's a waiver to a rule or um, a new piece of legislation or a new funding, you know, a new funding stream. It typically, the expectations are that it takes, you know, several months for something as simple as like a three-day sniff waiver. But the pace of waivers and regulation that have been coming out of CMS is just staggering. Um, it, it's blowing me away, just the, the, the pace at which they're bringing new things to market to support the health system to adapt uh, to deal with this crisis. So I, I think, you know, we, we will be in an era after uh, this knowing that CMS can really get stuff done fast if they need to. And so I guess that may have put a higher bar on future regulation for it to be more responsive to the needs of, of care providers because uh, we're seeing their ability to do that right now. Were there any specific regulations? I know clearly you mentioned before this issue of telehealth. Uh, is that what you were thinking about? Or are there other major ones you're thinking about that are currently happening now? Yeah, let me mention a, a few of them. One is the, so physicians can bill for telehealth visits at the same rate as in-person visits. That's one. Hospitals currently can bill for services that are not, they have to only bill for services that are performed within their four walls. 
And now hospitals can actually build for services that are performed outside their four walls. What, like for instance, directing patients to telehealth for offsite screening locations. That's a pretty big deal for hospitals. There's like 80 additional services that uh, can be provided over telehealth and CMS is gonna pay for them now. Hospitals can hire um, local clinicians. Well, so specifically, you know, physician assistants and nurse practitioners can practice without a physician's supervision as permitted by, by state law, which currently there's very strict physician supervision rules for PAs and NPs. Um, and I think it'll be, you know, interesting to see them practice with a lot more flexibility and not necessarily the need for um, what, you know, some would call a, a paternalistic system. Um, others would say it's a very important licensing standard. Uh, or, you know, kind of a accountability standard or, you know, safety standard uh, to have physician supervision of uh, PAs and NPs, but what they're allowing for is hospitals to do that without supervision. I think that's really um, important. Where can folks look up those things you're talking about? Is there a site that, that you're drawing this from? Yeah, so there's CMS has a press release um, basically describing what they're calling, you know, sweeping regulatory changes to help um, U.S. healthcare system address COVID uh, patient surge. And there's um, a few summary uh, summary uh, summaries of the regulation that that are out there. But there's you know there's another dozen uh, at at least uh, waivers that people have talked about you know that create restrictions on hospitals and other providers. Supervision of medical residents can be performed virtually now. So that's a really interesting one. It's a long list, and the pace at which they've been doing it has just been blowing me away. Well, you know what? I, if you can send me that link, I'll I'll post it in the show notes as well for this podcast. Jay, I just want to say, as I'm listening to you, I just am so appreciative of of you and your thinking. You you have an absolutely beautiful mind and you've got a beautiful heart. And I just, I love the way you think and observe and analyze. And I would love to, if you don't mind, I'd love to kind of circle back with you in two or three or four weeks and kind of, as things progress, get your, get an uptake again. Cause I, I just really, really appreciate the way you're thinking. I appreciate that, Zeb. That, that's very kind of you um, and flattering and probably not totally true, but I appreciate that. It's absolutely true. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for taking the time right now. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Zeb. Folks, uh, that was the interview I recorded just a few days ago with Jay Desai, the founder and CEO of Patient Ping. As you saw there, Jay uh, has such a brilliant mind and again, such a brilliant heart. He's an empathetic and innovative entrepreneur. He's a brilliant observer and commentator on the changes that are happening in healthcare, as well as those that are coming in healthcare. I truly hope we have the opportunity to speak with him again sometime soon. I've embedded the link Jay sent from the cms.gov site that has the recent coronavirus waivers and rules that we mentioned in the conversation. You can connect to that in the podcast description I wrote up, or you can go directly to www.cms.gov backslash newsroom for the fact sheets and, and for more recent updates from CMS. It really provides a sense of the enormity of unprecedented change that has occurred and continues to occur on the regulatory side as a result of this pandemic crisis, a silver lining for sure. My friends, these are unprecedented times, so I hope you find valuable information, guidance, and inspiration in listening to these experts and entrepreneurs share how they're adapting to this pandemic in real time and how they're thinking about and planning for the future. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients 
for those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients in these times especially I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, to families, to communities, and to our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourself and please share this podcast series with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of their Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.